Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. There's an argument out there that gender differences are just the product of socialization. Implicitly and explicitly, the argument goes, culture tells men and women how men and women should behave. My guest today argues that drivers of male and female behavior are a little more complex than that. In fact, about 50% of the differences between men and women are rooted in our biology, beginning with how our respective brains form in utero. Her name is Luanne Brizendine. She's a neuropsychiatrist, professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of two books, The Female Brain and The Male Brain. Today, we discuss the latter work and the trajectory the male brain takes from prenatal life all the way through old age. We begin our conversation discussing how a megadose of testosterone in the womb wires a male brain differently from the female brain and how that influences how boys socialize and learn during childhood. Luann then discusses how the male brain is restructured again with another megadose of testosterone during puberty and the impact that has on a teen's behavior. She then walks through what happens to the male brain when a male falls in love, has kids, and enters mature adulthood. Consider this podcast an intro guide to how your brain works, assuming you're a dude listening to this, though female listeners will also get insights on why the males in their lives act the way they do. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is malebrain. Luann Brizendine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. So you published a book a few years back called The Male Brain, which is this fun narrative, scientific narrative of what happens to a male brain from fetus all the way to elderhood. So there's a lot of you know discussion out there about the basis of gender and sex, right? Is it biological? Is it cultural? So what's your take? Is it all biological or does culture play a role in how men and women behave and think? Well, you know, there's been a big discussion for many years between psychologists and biologists. And the psychologists look at culture and upbringing, and the biologists tend to look at the biology, the hormones, the genetics of of, of everything that they look at, but including gender. And um, if you ask a biologist what part is biology and what part is culture and upbringing, biologists will tell you it's about 50-50 from their point of view. And if you ask psychologists how they look at it, which is culture and which is biology, they will say, you know, it's about 50-50. So really, there is no disagreement. Uh, There may be disagreement in the details, but but in the broad sense, there's no disagreement that culture has a huge part, if not 50% to play in uh, how 
our behavior is shaped by our culture, how our behavior is shaped by our family of upbringing and our schooling, et cetera, et cetera, because things that boys are, quote unquote, encouraged and allowed to do uh, versus things that girls are encouraged and allowed to do are somewhat different. And girls and boys tend to um, if you left to their own druthers, they will actually sex segregate during grade school years um, and enjoy playing with same sex more than they do playing with opposite sex. And that seems to have something to do with just the actual interests that boys have in in things that make a lot of noise and explosions and um, kind of the, come on guys, let's go get them, kind of the team effort and fighting off the enemy. Girls will do that for a while with the boys, but then they get kind of bored with that. And they will, they want to, they will like to do more th- of the category of play called um, role play. Um, They like to play like you be the doctor, I'll be the patient, or you be the mommy, I'll be the daddy. And then um, role play these uh, roles that also are in relationship to the other more than kind of, come on guys, let's go get them. So there's a a big difference. um, And that's just kind of a brief summary of a type of thing that boys will do that with girls maybe for, you know, one one play of, you know, 15 minutes, and then they want to go off running with the boys. Come on, guys, let's go get them or what, whatever they're doing that's more active. So that is a, a stereotype, but actually in um, all of Eleanor Maccabee's studies um, from kids' ages about 5 to age 9, 10, 11, 12, they really prefer to play the, the games that the, their same-sex peers want to play. So th- that's something that's noticed. And of course, then things start to shift when the hormones of puberty start to blast in. Right. Well, let's talk about the hormones. Like I, I like at the beginning of the book, you talk about, you kind of list this cast of characters. So what are the hormones that influence both male and female brains? So if we start from the very beginning, Brett, on terms of like at the moment that the sperm meets the egg, that sperm is carrying an X chromosome, the baby will be girl, carries a Y, it will be boy. So like right at that moment, our our gender is set uh, genetically. And at about eight to 10 weeks of fetal life, the tiny testicles in the male fetus start to pump out huge amounts of testosterone already, and they marinate the body and brain and change it into male. In the girl, there is no testosterone, and so her system develops without testosterone and ends up being female at birth. So by the time we're born, our, our, um, if everything goes according to plan, we're either male or female. And at birth, um, after, from about one month to 12 months in a boy, his testicles continue to pump out almost adult male levels of testosterone during that first year of life. Um, And girls, it's about from age one month to 22 months. So her body start, her ovaries are pumping out estrogen for those first two years of life. And we call that phase of hormonal development infantile puberty because of these huge levels of their um, sex-determined hormones. We don't really know much about infantile puberty in terms of what it's doing and how it's really developing uh, brain and body circuitry, but biologists continue to think that it's most likely to do with it's priming the whole fertility system in humans. Um, and um, other other animals do not have infantile puberty. So that's something particular to us humans. 
Uh, then, of course, we have that pause called the juvenile pause, or in the vernacular, it's called childhood. Childhood is a time when female hormones and male hormones from the ovaries or testicles are very, very low level. And basically, females and males during childhood have about the same amount of estrogen, testosterone as the opposite sex. So that's a time of quiet hormones with very, very low levels um, until the ramping up of puberty. And males at about nine years old, nine to 11 years old, their testicles start to respond to signals from the pituitary and brain that tell um, the testosterone-making cells to turn on. And between ages of nine and 15, males go from a very low level of testosterone up to a very, up to, um, you know, 200 times as much. So you're up at the two, three, 400 level by the time you're 13 or 14 at the time when the first wet dream happens. And that basically is an indication that the system, the male reproductive system is primed and ready to go. Okay. Well, let's talk about, so you're born, you go through this infantile puberty. We're not exactly sure why or what's going on, but there's an indication that there's some sort of structural reorganization going on in the brain and the body, priming it for that fertility period later on. So let's talk about some of the differences that we see between boys and girls during childhood. They have the same amount of hormones, both testosterone and estrogen. But as you said, there are differences. You mentioned sort of the, the different ways that boys and girls socialize and play. Um, what are some other differences like how between boys and girls during uh, childhood? Well, one of the things that researchers have found is that um, they, they've had several studies where they'll take boys at age six, seven, they'll let them play together for 30 or 40 minutes, and then the uh, observers kind of uh, rank them according, according to like who ended up being the alpha boy and all the way down um, to the bottom of the group, and that's kind of called establishing hierarchy. And girls don't tend to do that. Um, they have uh, other types of, of play and kind of um, different types of aggression than boys do, but it's a little bit harder to establish a real hierarchy like boys do very quickly. If you bring those boys back together at about age 11 or 12, they haven't seen each other in years and years. So they have a couple of studies where the boys basically reestablish the same hierarchy as they had at that younger age at six or seven, which is kind of remarkable if you think about it. The, uh, so there's this hierarchical play that's different, different in boys and girls. Um, and they just, they basically, there is, it's not clear whether that those boys just have more, um, more hormones, more aggressivity, more charisma, or all of the above that end up being the leaders of the pack. But there is a, a very kind of clear leadership hierarchy established in boys pretty quickly. That's not the same in girls. And how do boys say learn, right? Different. How do, how do they interact with learning or paying attention that's different from girls? I think that's a fascinating, the learning difference between boys and girls is one that's of course had, had a lot of airplay and a lot of schools that are trying to address this because um, an, an example is is math. And they were basically the study looking and trying to have how to get girls to learn math more easily or more quickly or learn math more like boys learn math. And in, in, the, in the studies that were looking at that, they basically discovered that the way 
the boys learn boys fidget and wiggle and 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 when they're learning math they kind of, they 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 wiggle and kind of Im- actually embody if you will they embody uh, the equations or they embody the concepts in some way um, so you, if you can't they stopped asking the girls to sit still and had the girls start you know wiggling around and doing some of the same kind of embodiment movements that the boys were doing and show that actually the girls learned uh, learned math much more quickly so that's that's an interesting study that a lot of people have made a lot of it we don't really we really still do not understand very well um, I think that um, the idea that you want to have um, boys sitting still all the time in a classroom and you remember that one of the things is is that most teachers of elementary school age age kids are female by and large and so there's been a big emphasis on like you know the girls who can sit still and draw and write and be and be um, not jumping up and out of their chairs all the time are are the students who get praised by the teachers the most and it's usually the boys who are being considered to being disruptive etc so they're getting a lot of sort of negative feedback in the classroom about their lack of ability to sit still so people have started thinking, well, maybe this isn't such a great idea to have everybody sitting so still. You need to let each kid, but in particular boys, need to be able to move around uh, to learn better. One of the interesting insights I got from your book was sort of the mood and emotions of boys and girls. So traditionally, males in most cultures are expected to be stoic. Females are allowed to be emotional. But you highlight, there's research that suggests that infant boys um, and even young you know, young boys, they tend to be more emotionally, I don't know what's the word, sensitive than girls. Like they, they get upset more easily and take a little longer to calm or soothe. Yes. So the, the, uh, an interesting thing is it's a little bit of a reverse, you know, in adulthood, but in the child, in, in, in little boys, basically, uh, get their nervous system more jangled and are more and are more sensitive to many things than little girls and it takes them a little bit longer to calm down and to soothe them lots of moms certainly notice this and they just behave accordingly in terms of the soothing soothing of of little boys but it's interesting that their systems are wired to be um more reactive and more sensitive in in childhood in, in little kids than maybe we're talking about like under age five or six and I guess they learned how to, that's where we kind of see the interplay of culture and biology. The, the culture expects them to be stoic. So they learn how to tamp that down. Well, you know, the, I think that the biggest, the, the most well-known adage is boys don't cry or, you know, you know, suck it up. Don't, you know, suck it up. Let's, let's stop the crying. There's no use in crying. Like act like a man, right? I mean, there's right. lots of that, especially in the fathers, the fathers tend to be, the, the fathers tend to be the ones who carry that culture to the boys. Mothers won't, mothers don't say that kind of thing to their boys. If they, they don't say like, you know, stop that crying. Why don't you man up? You know, stop aching, stop aching like a baby. I mean, mothers don't tend to say that. It's usually fathers who enforce that mandate upon their sons because, you know, they don't, it, it, it upsets the fathers to see that maybe their sons will be shunned because they're, quote unquote, a crybaby. And it makes the father feel, look bad. So you mentioned boys tend to socialize in teams. They establish hierarchies. They're interested in math. They sort of embody that through, you know, phygeny sort of becoming the equation physically. Um, What are some other differences? I I think you highlight that boys tend to be interested in things or objects and girls, people. 
So I think this the the uh, the idea that boys are interested in in things and especially in toys that move. Um, even little, they've done some studies in young primates. Then the males, little male primates, prefer uh, toys that actually have wheels and move. And um, little girls will will play on. They're not they're not so particular as little boys are about things that move and things that are uh, that are active. So that the toy choice. The toy choice in in boys and girls, you know, you might have one out of ten boys preferring more girls things, and one out of ten girls preferring more boy toys. So there's that. It's important to realize that the male and female brain are more alike than different. We are the same species after all. So um, there, and there's huge amounts of overlap. So we're just we're talking about some things that are quite st- quite quite amount of stereotype here. Right. Okay. So we we've we've gone through childhood. Hormones are about the same between boys and girls, but despite that similarity, there, there are some differences that show up. And I, I'm guessing, I mean, I know you said like they, they don't know why the differences, they, they, it could be the, the surge of testosterone that you received in the fetus and in, when you're an infant might play a role. Some, somehow that, you know, remember from like eight weeks of gestation, the testicles are working overtime to make testosterone. So testosterone is a really, is the really important sculptor, the sculptor of manliness, of manhood, of, of the male brain circuits, of the male body. You know, testosterone kills off any of the female parts of the organs, you know, because we have, we have both organs. Where we all have both, both organs in us at some point, and then testosterone kills off all of the uh, the female organs, like the tissue that would become a uterus or vagina, that is killed off by testosterone, and the male organs are stimulated. So there's testosterone is quite a um, uh, a biological sculptor, if you will, of of the male model. Okay, so it goes through that sculpting process uh, in in utero shortly after birth, but then there's another reconstruction that happens at puberty that we all know about. Um, so we all know the the secondary, I guess, is that what the secondary sexual, like what is that called? Yeah, right. the secondary, the, like the deeper voice. Deeper voice. Hair, uh, you know, mustache and right. beard and genital hair, all that and stuff. Hair, right. All that stuff. All the stuff that you start feeling awkward about, right around twelve or yeah, thirteen. Yeah, the kids are embarrassed about. Yes, yes, I know. We had we used to have a grandson, and he would actually for a while he was he would talk to us on Skype about various things as he was going into puberty. He used to count the number of pubic hairs and report back <laughs> to us about how many. And then it was very noticeable though when he was counting at about twenty five, he stopped. We right. didn't hear from him right. anymore on that count. So it was, yeah. <laughs> it was all, it was all lots of fun and exciting in the beginning. And then all of a sudden it's like, uh, don't think this is too cool. Not cool anymore. Okay. Well, let's talk about what happens in the brain. Cause that's what the focus of your book is. So what is going on in the sort of this reconstruction of the brain during uh, the male brain during puberty? So basically you can just imagine it's a tsunami of testosterone just starts to hit the male brain and it hits those areas that have been primed in his brain to do what's the the most important thing from a genetic perspective for a male to do is to go sow his seed, right? You um that's the idea is to get your get your DNA into the next generation, which requires seeking out fertile females and inseminating them. So that that is kind of like the basic mission of the male. And um it's, it's important to realize that because that's just how a lot of the wiring that's all turned on during puberty, which can be quite confusing 
two boys. Um, I'm sure most guys I talked to remember this vividly. And all of a sudden, every pair of breasts that walked down the street and, you know, every every kind of uh, uh, buttocks or sexual innuendo is, is all, all of a sudden just kind of blares out at you. And um, there's this I can remember, I can remember my son when he hit that age that he was, he would, I was interviewing, I said, like, I'm writing part of this book and he was about 13. I said, what, what do guys your age say about, you know, when girls come to school in very skimpy clothes in the spring and summer? And he says, well, mom, pretty soon you just, you feel like you can't take your eyes off them. But, and at first you feel like a perv and then you realize that all the other guys are thinking the same thing. So, so I think that, Boys go through this period where they're really doing what their biology tells them to, biology and hormones tells them to do, and yet they have a lot of of, of awkward feelings about what that means about who they are. But that's just a, you know a part of the unfolding of this process in early adolescence. So besides the amplification of you know sex, I mean, what other be- behaviors does testosterone start to um, encourage or promote in boys? So I think that another fascinating area that um, I think we don't know enough about yet that's very interesting is that the male facial features and the male looking at other faces, um, the testing of looking at faces and then while you're in a brain scanner, if males start to look at faces that are happy, they you know they'll report that they're happy, but if then they start to report faces even that are what are called neutral faces and they they report them in adolescent boys they report them to be angry faces and of course a really angry face they'll report's angry but all of a sudden even neutral faces are starting to look a little angry to them so you know you as an adult you will say well they're kind of misreading that a little bit and the misreading of that is is because something is happening in their brain to be looking at other faces to, to see them as being a bit angry. Um, that may be something to do with self-preservation. That you know, that's probably old, old wiring in the male brain from you know the our most successful great, 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 great grandfathers. You know, were the ones who survived and the ones who didn't get killed off by somebody else and were able to you know procreate and have us be their offspring. So it's really important to to know what ancestors, the way they survived, and what characteristics in the male brain allowed them to survive. So we mentioned it, boys, even as as children, uh, are very hierarchical. I imagine this only gets amplified during puberty. Yes, yeah, so it, so it continues to play out, um, and I think that. Because boys, different boys, you know, some boys reach their full height not until they're in their early 20s on the other end of the spectrum. And some boys reach their full height at 13 or 14. And so um, something about the rapidity of their growth and their muscles, their height, um, certainly allows certain boys to be much more um, uh, to, to maybe change their place a little bit in the hierarchy, but um, the testosterone is making them much more uh, noticing any microaggressions, microaggressions from others. Um, and I remember when my son first started driving, you know, 16, 17, microaggressions from other drivers that I didn't even notice, you know, when I was 
in, I had to be, you know, his uh, co-pilot there for a while. Microaggressions from other drivers drove him crazy <laughs> at that stage. So, but those kinds of things play out in the classroom. They play out on the, you know, on the playground. That play out in in their lives. So that's that's part of the sort of uh, hierarchical and just how boys start noticing uh, and maybe what we call hyper-cathecting or hyper-noticing um, and being vigilant about negativity or maybe angry intents of other people. Right. So well, here's an interesting question that I was thinking about. So you have all this testosterone coursing through boys at puberty, um, which testosterone is supposed to you know, make you more uh, ambitious, have more drive, take more risk. Yet, you know, high schools across the country, teachers reporting that this period of time, boys become very disengaged from school. So what's going on there? Why is it that, you know, they have this, this, this milieu of hormones that's, you know, driving them to be the best so they can, uh, you know, pass on their seeds, sow their oats, as you said, but like they're disengaged from things like school or other aspects of life. We know, we don't, entirely understand what that's about but that we, we what we do know so i'll tell you we know what's going on in the brain at that time that the brain is having a huge like the second what's called the second brain largest brain development in the human uh, uh growth pattern is in teenage years and what's happening is as if branches on a tree are just sprouting all through the brain i mean there's so many more connections than you'll eventually need so there's all this brain growth that's going on like mad probably related to growth hormone and a lot of other types of growth like so not only is the body growing that the brain is actually growing and it's overgrowing and um one of the one of the things that happens that a lot of uh, schools are trying to address right now is that the sleep the wake cycle changes hugely the the going to sleep doesn't happen until later in the evening you know you don't get sleeping want to go to sleep till midnight maybe and then real, really you need more sleep at age 14 than you did at 10 you know most teenagers really need about between 10 and 12 hours sleep a night uh, because of all this growth and brain growth that's going on and growth hormone is secreted at nighttime so you know it's a really important time for that so boys may be sitting in classrooms actually their brain is still asleep it hasn't woken up yet it probably won't wake up till four o'clock in the afternoon or something you know it's very there's a there's, a, there's what's happening in the brain under the hood if you look under the hood the apathy and just not being able to focus and pay attention and actually it's that thing is shifted whole a whole hour later in boys than in girls so girls go to sleep earlier and they can wake up earlier boys go to sleep later and and that will reset itself to be matched between males and females at about age 30. Interesting. And I was, what, from my, what I understand about testosterone is that it also promotes dopamine production, which is sort of the, you know, makes you want to do things. And I guess if you have too much dopamine, like you need more dopamine to like get motivated. It's like boys might actually be bored, right? They, they need a lot of stimulation to get, to get excited about yeah. something. And I think that's one of the compelling parts of video games, you know, the, the, the video games that are the singer shooter, shooter games where you're basically just all, you have to be all alert all the time in every moment to see who's coming from which side and you know that and i think that that's an example of things that really get boys attention gets their brains attention and honestly the stuff that's going on in the classroom cannot hold a candle to that it's so slow it's just so boring it's just like it's just not getting their attention so you're right it's that they're um it's not that they have attention deficit disorders it's that they're not 
interested in paying attention to how the, how the material is presented. So that's a big problem in our in you know in how and how we teach adolescents. And you're right about the wanting to do well, wanting to be excellent, wanting being ambitious, which all the testosterone you know makes huge amounts of dopamine in the brain, and so there's lots of uh, shall we say um, seeking excitement. So teen boys really want to seek excitement, um, sometimes to the exclusion of caution. But th- there is no excitement in the classroom generally for most teen boys. All right. So the puberty, the surge of testosterone reshapes the brain. It's all it's priming it for you know fatherhood, basically. But let's talk about before fatherhood, because uh, you had a chapter about what happens to the male brain when a guy is in love. So what what goes on when guy sees a girl? falls head over heels in love, what's happening to his brain? So, you know, if he's found someone that he feels like is his his partner, his match, he's sexually attracted, emotionally attracted, and his whole brain is like all of a sudden takes on every little bit of the things that she likes and how she is. And, and he, we call it kind of a emerging of your two egos and that he kind of takes her into himself and his own mind as, as his love object. And so he's, um, like they say, head over heels, he's head over heels for her. And, um, the dopamine is surging and the oxytocin, the, the love hormone, starts to get going because, you know, touching, caressing, kissing really releases lots of oxytocin in both male and female brains. So he has basically bonded with her and um, it's almost, some people describe it almost as being uh, psychotic because you have a whole different reality. Your reality is through the lens of her. Everything, everything has to do with her spending time with her, what she likes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's quite um, uh, the whole male brain and body gets overtaken by love as the female does. Well, I thought it was interesting too. You note that uh, that men like there's like this, sort of this idea that women are more you know grow more attached and they're the more the quicker to fall in love. But the research shows that men actually fall in love faster than than women do. And it's interesting because the visual cortex, you know, that that part of your brain that's back there at the you know at the base of your skull, right right on the top of your neck, the visual cortex in males is very stimulated all the time by testosterone and it's seeking out curvaceous females. I mean, and so if once he's found the one he's, he's, he can have love at first sight much more easily. Yeah. Well, and also, so from a genetic perspective, from evolutionary perspective, sexual selection perspective, uh, there's this sort of idea that the males of a species want to, uh, reproduce with as many females as possible because it increases the chances of them spreading their seed. Um, but you highlight research that in some species, and particularly in humans, that there is that, but also there's some men or males who are predisposed to monogamy. What, what, what happened? What's going on there? Right. So I think monogamy, you know, in our species, there's a wide variety between those males who tend to be primed to be to have many partners and those who are primed to be monogamous. And, um, uh, I think it's also somewhat cultural um, in that you know what what is acceptable in your culture or not. But there are so th- we think that that has to do something with both testosterone level because the the varieties the testosterone level between 400 and 1,000 is a long range, and that's adult males are in that range, and males that are at the very top of that uh, testosterone range have a higher likelihood of being promiscuous and of having lots of mates. 
and those in the middle and in the lower end are tend have a greater tendency to be monogamous. So some of it may have to do with testosterone level, some of it may have to do with culture, and some of it may have to do with that. I talk about that vasopressin receptor gene, in that there seem to be in the little prairie vole studies that we look at, there's a vole that is called the prairie vole, and the males in that species are very monogamous. They pair bond, they take care of the pups, um, and his cousin, the Montana, Vol is um, just the opposite. He's kind of a hit and run guy. He's very promiscuous and uh, and inseminates many females. Doesn't do anything to take care of the pups. Probably doesn't even know who his pups are. So they're very different. And they just they've discovered that the vasopressin receptor gene, which is another hormone in the brain, in those um, ones that are monogamous. Are, are very a long receptor, and the ones that are promiscuous are very short. And humans have that same kind of vasopressin receptor gene. And in some males, it's long, and some males, it's short. Actually, it's at 17 different links in humans. So there's a very large range. And some studies have looked at that. A big Swedish study looked at that and found that the males that are have the longest vasopressin receptor gene and would be hypothesized to be more monogamous actually have the longest long-term marriages. So there's something to do with genetics, culture, and, and hormones all wrapped up into that, which don't, I think that's just fascinating that we humans would have that type of uh, diversity and propensity. That is really interesting. Okay. So a guy falls in love. Uh, all these hormones are bathing his brain and his body to uh, pair up with a female. They do. And a baby results, right? So the woman gets pregnant. Like what happens to a ma- the male brain when he he becomes a father. So the fascinating thing about the fatherhood hormones, the testosterone drops by about 30%. And then a hormone that we call the parenting hormone, both in males and females, the prolactin hormone um, in males goes up by about 25 or 30%. So the males when they go into fatherhood, it's not just the the female body we know is changing like mad. She's going through pregnancy. She has huge hormonal changes. But it was a big discovery to find out that the males have a whole fatherhood set of hormones, which decreases their testosterone and increases this parenting hormone called prolactin in males. Now, prolactin, you know, the word pro- prolactin, lactation means milk formation. So not that males breastfeed, and that is the hormone in females that makes breast milk. So we don't really know what that hormone prolactin is doing in males, but we think it probably has something to be doing with the the parenting hormone in males. And does this decrease in testosterone occur even before birth? It starts to a little bit. It starts to drop. And then for the first six months after birth, um, that's when it's noted to be um, 30% down. And then after about six months, it starts to climb back up to the the set point for that individual. So interesting, when the infant is most in need of care from both parents, um, that testosterone level that might, say, drive him, some hypothesis says it might, if it was still higher, would drive him to maybe not stay as close to home, maybe drive him to seek out other partners. And, you know, so... Um, some of the thought is it it basically decreases the sex drive in the male. Well, could it like couldn't the testosterone decrease because like you're not sleeping, right? I remember when I <laughs> when I had my kid, like for the first like six months, 
you like I hardly got any sleep. And you know, as you see, like testosterone, most of it's produced, you know, while you're asleep. So maybe the kids crying, keeping you up is reducing your testosterone. So you, yeah, you stick it around. Might just be from total exhaustion, which every parent can, I think the biggest deficit of every parent is sleep. Please let me sleep. <laughs> right. Those babies, they're they're decreasing your testosterone. Exactly. They do. The babies decrease your testosterone. So that you're you're correct. So okay, we've we've gone through puberty. What happens in adulthood? Is like, you know, from thirty to 50, do things kind of stay the same for men? Is it sort of a stable period? So, you know, what the, the counterpart in females is, you know, females have something called menopause at 50, where they just, where their ovaries stop producing estrogen because they've run out of eggs. Males never run out of sperm. And so you guys continue to have production of sperm and testosterone for your entire lives. But it does decrease. I think the the peak of male testosterone is between the ages of 19 and 29. So that's when the sperm production is at its height and testosterone production is at its height. And then after about age 30, the um, testosterone level starts to decrease between like one and two or three percent per year. So it just, it, it, goes down by about age 50, um, males are only producing about half of the testosterone that they produced at age like 25. I mean, what happens to the the behavior because of that decrease in testosterone? So about age 80, um, the testosterone level has gone down enough that I know that George Bernard Shaw always said, oh yes, thank goodness that I'm not being driven by that anymore. (laughs) I think Cicero said something like that too. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a, it's a well-known comment, right? Of, of like men who have been sort of driven sexually all of their lives. And that's not that it's a negative thing, but it's certainly something that sometimes it's not sometimes you wish that it weren't there. Um, and I think that, so the, what's called andropause is a gradual decline in testosterone that's normal with male aging. And um, it's still plenty to, to you know, have to support to have muscle strength, muscles, you know, it's still plenty to have energy and some sex drive, but not nearly the amount that you had when you were 19 or 20. And I guess uh, men start to mellow out a bit at this age as well. Yeah. And I think that that thing about seeing, seeing others' faces as being possibly aggressive and that thing about being, being more uh, sort of hair trigger to, um, you know, I think the tendency to road rage or the tendency to, you know, uh, taking things wrong um, and feeling aggressive about it, that, that whole tendency uh, starts to decrease. Yeah. I mean, it's something I, when I talk to my friends who are about the same age as me, like 35, talking about the difference between our dads when we were kids and then like them interacting with our, our kids, with their grandkids, you know, and I remember your dads were sort of on edge, right? Their work and like, they're just kind of seem grumpy and peevish. Right. And then, you know, they're in their sixties and they just seem like a completely different, they're just like mellow and calm and just, I know they seem like a happy puppy, you know, it's very different. And I think it's quite shocking to most, all of us, even the girls to watch your, to watch your parents with your, especially your father's, with your kids because, you know, they're just like a big teddy bear. Yeah. And I mean, what do you think is happening? So you, you see a lot of men, older men these days starting to take TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. I mean, how is that going to change things? So, you know, so I'm kind of working on a new book called Female Brain 2.0, which is about women age 50 to 100 plus. And so um, a lot of the females I'm interviewing, their husbands in their 50s are taking 
testosterone replacement. And uh, it's quite interesting to talk with these. This, of course, I'm seeing it through the women's eyes and then and talking, to, of course, to some of the men as well. And there's, you probably see these ads on TV, right? That's called low, do you have low T? Do you, right. And so, of course, you have low T after the age of 50 or 60. It's supposed to be going down. You're supposed to be becoming that big teddy bear grandpa. You know, that's that's the life stage you're supposed to be at. And indeed, there are some men that medically um, lose too much testosterone and have such a little amount that they need to have a replacement. But by and large, medically, um, this idea of low T would apply to every man going through his, he's not going to have the testosterone he had when he's 25. And um, lots of men these days, I think, are finding it, um, I think maybe it's also a very American phenomenon that you just don't, you don't want to lose your edge, right? You don't want to lose your edge and you don't want to lose your energy. You don't want to lose your kind of like, um, you know, your ambitious, aggressive, creative, I mean, whatever the edge is that you have. And so I think that it's kind of uh, it's seeking the fountain of youth a bit. The, so your an- the answer to your question about what it's doing. So the women I talk to are uh, postmenopausal. Their husbands are getting their testosterone injections and they know for the first two or three days, he's just going to want sex as much as possible at the age of 60 or 65. And they are really, frankly, just not that interested. It's not like they're never interested, but not at that level. So it does cause some marital problems. Interesting. And I mean, I imagine too, you know, they're going to, if you take TR, you might lose that generative stage of your life, right? When you're old and you're kind of sealing up your legacy, like you might lose that because you're, you're thinking you just have that edge again where you're not the, I don't know, I guess nostalgic is the right word maybe. But you're, I think the correct word you said was generative. There's a, this, that, the word kind of generative in that you, you've reached a stage where you may, you may have done not everything you're going to have to do in your life, but you've done a huge amount already in your life and your and your your productivity and the things that you've accomplished. And um, it's it's your turn to get to smell the roses a little bit, but also to kind of give back and mentor the younger generation. So I think that 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 urge to teach others and become a mentor and become a wise wise elder um i think i think is a wonderful lovely thing for men and if you're just completely putting your testosterone back up to where it was when you're 25 that you know you're creating a conflict in yourself between those two i agree with you i think it's, it becomes a conflict and um uh, so you and i both have a you know a, I'm asking myself the question of like, okay, I can see why they want to do that and they want to maintain their edge because there's a feeling of the youth culture in our in the United States that if you aren't part of the youth culture, you're you're out of it. You're you know cast off to the side. So um, you know I, that that's something that's it's it's something that every person goes through in their own change in identity and development as we all get older. And some people just aren't willing to let that happen. I see a future think piece in like the Atlantic or something about this (laughs) topic or something. Good. I hope you write it. (laughs) Right. Well, Luann, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, they can go on either the male brain or the female brain. I would say it's a fabulous place to start because um, as you noticed from the back of the book, there's many, many, many um, other articles that it refers to and um, they can just start to 
to pick all of those apart and do a deep dive into, you know, what it means sort of biologically and emotionally to be male. Awesome. Well, Luann, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for doing what you do. We all appreciate your giving voice to this, this whole area of manliness. Thank you. My guest today was Dr. Luann Brizendine. She's the author of the book, The Male Brain. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about her work on our show notes at aom.is slash malebrain. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.